Thank you, ladies, for leading us in worship. Will you take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 12, please? I know uh, Pastor Tim has been preaching through Ephesians, I believe, if I, if I saw that correctly on the, the website as I looked at some of the sermons that he's been working through. Coincidentally, this Pastor Tim has also been preaching through Ephesians, so it's, I don't know, it's uh, some weird overlap there, some interesting parallels. Uh, but I wanted to just kind of jump into the book of Hebrews and pick up in chapter 12 this morning. You know, I, I was thinking about coming and guest speaking at a, a church and filling the pulpit for a congregation that, you know, some of us know each other and we have a little bit of history and some of you don't know me at all. And uh, what exactly do I want to bring from the scriptures to say to you this morning? And I, I want to encourage you. I want to bring a word of encouragement. I laughed as I reflected on a moment in church history when Jonathan Edwards, some of you are familiar with the, uh, one of the best theological minds in American history, um, you've probably heard about the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've ever read that message, that will tear you up in all kinds of good ways. Uh, some of you may not know this, he actually preached that message when he was filling the pulpit at another church. <laughs> you imagine that? So he was guest preaching when he delivered that message, and uh, I'm not going to do that to you today, all right? We're not going to uh, go through how we're like sinners hanging over a spider web over the, the fiery pit of hell. It's a good message, though. It's a good word, and I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't. Uh, but this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, I, I want to, as I said, bring a word of encouragement to you. Uh, it's important to understand as I get into this text that it follows right after chapter 11, which is the faith... Hall of Fame, as some people refer to it. And you know, in chapter 11, the author goes through men and women of faith all the way back to Abel in the book of Genesis. And, and he shows from the very beginning that faith is what unites us to God. Faith is what is pleasing to God. And before Christ came and after Christ came, it's all been about faith. It's been about believing God and living by faith. And he goes through Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and Noah and the judges and David and some of the, the other prophets that lived by faith. And then in chapter 12, I, I, I use the New King James Version. Uh, it begins with the word, therefore. And one of my preaching professors said, the therefore is therefore a reason. Because it connects back to what was immediately said before it. So when we get to chapter 12 and he starts with the word therefore, he wants us to keep in mind everything he just said in chapter 11. So as he just surveyed the importance of faith and the history and the legacy of faith in the saints from the very beginning of time, he then pivots in chapter 12 and he says, as we read together in verse 1, Therefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Praise God for his word. This pivot in chapter 12 is going to turn our attention to someone better than all the saints listed in chapter 11. And one of my favorite themes in the book of Hebrews is how the author goes through and points out people like 
Moses, and he says Moses was useful, and Moses was a blessing, and Moses was a prophet, but Jesus is better. He says the angels are useful servants that God sends to minister to his saints, but Jesus is better. And he talks about the priests in, in the Levitical priesthood and all the service that they did at the temple and the tabernacle and how important those priests were. But Jesus is better. So it's this theme all throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is higher than anyone and everyone who's gone before him. And so as we get here in chapter 12, the author says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And I think... Sometimes this is mistakenly used as if uh, my loved ones or, or the saints who have gone before us, as if they're all gathered in heaven just looking down and watching me and, and cheering me on and saying, keep going, keep going, good job, like I'm running a marathon and they're on the sidelines. I don't think that's what the author is saying here. Uh, number one, let me just make a comment. When you're in the presence of God, you're not paying attention to what's happening down here on earth. <laughs> If you have the opportunity to behold the face of God and you're, you're free from the pains and sufferings and trials of this life, you're going to be preoccupied with that glory and that joy and that fellowship. And praise God, we'll be there soon. We'll be in that blessed paradise soon. I think the author is actually telling us that the saints who've gone before us have left a legacy behind. They have a standing testimony that still speaks to us today. And the best way I can understand this is a, an old illustration from Charles Spurgeon. He compared the Christian life to a journey, much like Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's a big allegory that compares the Christian life to going out on a journey with trails and rivers and mountains and enemies and distractions and all kinds of things that take place. Think about your walk in those terms. You're, you're setting out on a journey to go to heaven. You're setting out on a path to walk that ends with you face-to-face -face with God someday. Now, if we're honest, it's, it's sometimes a beautiful, breathtaking path, isn't it? There's going to be moments where it's just amazing, and you feel so high and lifted up and in God's presence. You feel the, the brightness of His face shining down upon you. You're full of joy. You want to sing. You want to shout. You're like, David, you could dance with happiness at what God has done for you. We have some of those moments, praise God. But the truth is, we also have moments where it's very much not like that. And we have those moments where instead of walking up on the mountaintop and having this sunshine, we're actually walking through the valley, and it's, it's a little dark, and it's stormy, and the path gets a little shaky. We have those moments, too. So I want you to imagine in one of those moments when you're in a very low point and you're very discouraged and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're distracted and distressed. You don't have to imagine too hard. You can remember or maybe you're feeling that way right now. I want you to imagine that you're so overwhelmed that you just stop walking. You stop journeying and you just drop on the path. And you don't feel like you can take the next step. You don't want to take the next step. And in that low moment, as you're just sitting there, overwhelmed, frustrated, stressed out, crying, got a headache, you glance over and there's a tree by the side of the path. And I want you to imagine on the tree, somebody has carved something with, let's say, a knife. And you look a little closer, and as you get up and you examine the tree, it says this, David 
was here. David was here. And if he's really cool like the teenagers, it was W-U-Z. David was here. That's how he wrote it on the tree. What would that do for you? I want you to think about the encouragement you could draw from that. In your low moment, in your weak spot, when you don't think you can go on, you see that one of the godliest people who walked this earth before us, one of the saints who lived by faith, was in that exact same spot. There was a moment in David's life when he felt like he couldn't go on. There was a moment in his life when his sin overwhelmed him. When he felt like he was not good enough, not able enough, he was in over his head. Imagine how encouraging it would be to remember that even someone like David was in that same spot. Now the encouragement goes a little deeper because not only was David in that spot, but praise the Lord, David didn't stay there. As you're on that journey and you see that tree with David's initials carved into it, you could also remember this. David finished the race. David made it all the way home into the presence of God. So he had a moment, he had an experience where he was overwhelmed and he maybe stopped walking and maybe got distracted, but God was faithful. God picked him up, gave him grace, and kept him moving. So the encouragement would go like this. Oh God, if you did that for David, then there must be hope for me too. If David could really mess things up and commit terrible sins and find himself in a jam and you got him out of that, then you can do the same thing for me. And Lord, if David was overwhelmed, Absalom betrayed him, he's distressed, he doesn't want to go on, and you snapped him out of it, Lord, and you brought him back and you put him on the throne of Israel and you kept him moving. If you did that for David, Lord, then then you can do that for me with my stress, with my problem, with my fear. Church, I want you to know that's how you're supposed to read the Bible. You're supposed to read the scriptures as the living word of God speaking to your heart, applying to your life. For example, when you're anxious and you're afraid and you're worried about tomorrow, you're supposed to pick up the Bible and read about people like Gideon, who was a man that was uncertain and fearful and worried about uh, the problem that he was facing. And as you read through the life of Gideon, you realize this, wow, Gideon was stressed out and anxious just like me, but God was faithful. He finished the race and he made it through that jam. Man, I can relate to that. Or if you've been particularly foolish lately, if you've been living in sin or you've done something that's disobedient to God and you just feel like there's no way you could be forgiven, there's no way God could restore you, there's no way you could have his favor in in your heart again, well, you read stories like Samson and you say, "That, that guy really messed up. And he hit rock bottom because of his immorality. But his hair grew back. And God gave him his strength back. And he finished the race. You're supposed to read the story and say, praise God. If he did it for Gideon, if he did it for Samson, if he did it for David, then then I can keep going. There's grace for me, too. You know, Jesus bought that. Not just the forgiveness of your sins, but the grace that you would need every day to finish the race and make it home. That, That was part of the purchase 
at Calvary. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm counseling somebody is, is to very simply sit down with the Bible after they've explained their problems, after they've explained what's uh, worrying them and, and overwhelming them, uh, and they, they want to tell me about this thing that can never be resolved, this problem that could never be fixed, this feeling that could never leave them. And I love to just pick up the Bible and say, guess what? Those exact things are in this book. God speaks to that exact problem in, in this book. And if you'd pick it up and read it and hear it with ears of faith, you'd realize that the same grace that God has given his people in the past is available to you today for your next step and for your journey. And we'll get here in just a moment, but just when you want to say to me, yeah, but my problem is different, right? We're really good at that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, the amazing grace of God and his faithfulness, but I'm, I'm the outlier. My situation is unique. I'm the one out here on an island that none of that applies to. And you want to say something like this, nobody understands, nobody knows exactly what it's like to be in my shoes. Nobody's carried a cross like mine. That's when you need to stop, take a breath, and you go to the Gospels. And you read the life of Jesus. And all of a sudden you realize that someone has tasted the bitter cup. Someone has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Even further than you and me. You realize at the cross, Jesus was actually forsaken by God. So that you wouldn't be. Jesus actually had the wrath of God poured out on him so that it wouldn't be poured out on you. And the more you read about that, the more you think about that, you start to realize this. It's not that nobody understands my suffering. Here's the problem. I haven't thought enough about Christ's suffering. I have not been dwelling on the cross. I haven't been dwelling on the gift of God's salvation that comes to me through Christ. That's why this section leaves all the saints in chapter 11 behind, and he says, but we're going to turn our attention to someone better. <laughs> so there's Noah and his ark, and there's Samson and Jephthah and the judges and David and all these people, and praise God for the faith that they had. Praise God for their stories. But let's just set them aside for a moment, and let's turn our eyes to one who's better. Let's not dwell on them. Let's turn our attention to one who's worthy of worship and praise. One who's done far better than all of them. And that's Christ himself. So the verb I want you to focus on in this section in verse 1 is run. The, the command here is to run the race. Now, there's, there's a, a couple different ways you can run. Just think with me for a moment. There are psychopaths who wake up and run at 5 o'clock in the morning. We'll never understand that. Running was like a consequence when I was in sports. It was not something you did for pleasure. And people talk about getting a runner's high. That's just a mental disorder. That's, that's a problem. That's not, that's not a good thing. There's another kind of running. A, a few years ago, we had a mouse problem in our house. And my wife and I were sitting down one night, and a mouse started across the living room floor. Church, I have never seen a woman move so fast in my life. 
my wife ran across the room and jumped up on the couch, just like you see in the cartoons. You know, She's up on the couch and she's screaming at this little tiny mouse that ran by. So that's one way you can run in fear and in terror because you've been shocked by something you weren't expecting. Or my favorite was uh, a few years ago, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan, uh, there was a Phillies game where one of the fans left the stands and ran onto the field. And he was running all over the outfield. And I remember the, the security team ran and chased him and they tased him in front of the whole crowd. And anything, if you know anything about Philadelphia sports fans, when the guy ran onto the field, everybody cheered. And when he got tased, they cheered even louder. <laughs> they loved it. But you watched him run around where he was drawing attention to himself. And he was, he was acting ridiculous. And he suffered the consequences for his, his, his crime as well. Well, let me just submit to you this morning. None of those are examples of the, of the kind of running that the author has in mind here. What is he talking about when he says, run the race? Let's unpack that verb a little bit. Uh, Number one, if you draw your attention to verse one, it means to run as light as you can. Run as light and as free as you can. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Run as light and as free as you can. Let's imagine that you're about to run a marathon. It's over 26 miles. And let's imagine as you walk up to the starting line, you see all the athletes stretching, maybe sipping some water, preparing themselves mentally. They got their headphones on. They're listening to their music. They're getting ready to run the race. And then you notice that one man walks up to the starting line, and he picks up a large backpack loaded, let's say, with camping supplies, stuffed with sleeping bags and pillows, It's got pans and cooking utensils hanging from the sides. And as he straps on this heavy backpack, he also has some firewood, some logs stacked on the top of it that are pressing his head down. And and as this man is about to run the marathon, he puts on this weight and he buckles all the straps and he goes up to the starting line. You don't have to be an Olympic athlete to know what to say to him. Brother, you don't need all that. Brother, you've got some some extra weight that you're carrying that's going to hinder you from running this race well. And the very basic advice you would give such a person is this. If you want to run well, you've got to take that off. You're not going to be camping on this race. What's the firewood for? There's no campfires. You're running a marathon. Those logs are useless. You got frying pans you think you're going to eat? There's no purpose for that. There's no use for that. It's only going to weigh you down. It's only going to slow you down. Brother, sister, you've got to take that off if you want to be serious about this race. Well, the idea here is very similar. The author of Hebrews says we're supposed to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So it's a metaphor for a spiritual reality. It means we have to be serious about sin. If there's any area of unrepentant sin in my life, oh God, today I've got to lay that aside because it's going to interfere with my running. It's going to slow me down. It's going to distract me 
It's going to be a hindrance in this race. Hey, it's hard enough to run the race. Amen? Life is hard enough. I don't need sin making it worse. I don't need to be hiding sin and living in sin and walking in darkness. I don't need any extra weight in this. It's hard enough as it is. Lay aside those sins today. Forsake those sins. Don't make room for sin in your life. But I think it's also interesting because the author says every sin, but then he also says, uh, and the weights. There's two different things there, sins and weights. And I think you can make the case that those weights are things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they become sin when they become too important. Uh, Here's an example. Uh, John Piper says, quote, One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. (laughs) That's a gut punch. God can, on the last day, say, what do you mean you didn't have time to pray? Look at these thousands of posts on Facebook. Look at all these tweets. Look at these hours on YouTube. You didn't have time to pray? Now, I'm not saying that social media is always evil and only sinful. That's not the point. But you see, it can become a sin when it crowds out good things like prayer, right? When your life is set up so that you've got time for that, but no time to pray and no time for the word, then that's become a weight. It needs to be forsaken. I guess you could put things in this category like video games, hunting, sports, cars, hobbies, things that are not wrong, things that are not evil, but they become weights when they replace the best things, the good things that are supposed to draw us closer to God. Uh, Secondly, he says we're supposed to run with endurance. We're supposed to run as light and free as we can. And then the second word here is run with endurance. It's also found in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So if we stay in the metaphor of a marathon, we can all say this. uh, Christianity is not a sprint to the finish line. It truly is a marathon. And you prepare for those things differently. The sprint is very fast, very intense, over very quickly. 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 12 seconds, whatever. The marathon's a little different. The marathon is step after step after step for hours. Mile after mile after mile. I think that's what the Christian life is like. It requires a different kind of endurance. And my favorite example of this is found in the book of Judges. You guys remember, if I go back to the story of Gideon for just a minute, Gideon's facing this enormous army of Midianites, and he's overwhelmed, and he's outnumbered, and we can't get into all the details of the story, but God uses 300 soldiers to deliver Gideon, and it's this amazing testimony of how God is able even when we don't have enough. God can do anything. I don't have to bring anything to the table. I have him. I have everything I need. And then at the end of the story, after Gideon and his men have defeated the Midianites, uh, they scared them. Remember the, pitch, uh, the pitchers and the torches and the trumpets and the Midianites all run around? There's this awesome testimony. It says, when Gideon came to the Jordan, listen to this, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Let me just read that phrase again. Exhausted, but still in pursuit. That's a Christian testimony. 
I'm exhausted, but I'm still pursuing Jesus. I am tired, I'm struggling, but I'm still in pursuit. I think that's the perfect picture of the Christian life. So Gideon's men crossed over the Jordan River. Oh, they're out of breath. And those swords are getting heavy to carry. And they've been running for miles. And Gideon says, we're not done yet. There's still more to go. And his men say, lead on. Oh, thank you, Lord. Exhausted, but still in pursuit. Let that be your testimony. Run your race with endurance. So don't say, well, I'm exhausted, so it's time to sit down and quit. No, brothers and sisters, be exhausted, but still pursue Christ. Which leads us to this, this final point. That Be careful when a pastor says final point. It means there's 25 minutes left, right? Okay. <laughs> we run with our eyes looking forward. We run this race with endurance, eyes up and forward. So easy to forget this. In chapter 11, we do read this testimony of Abraham. Listen to what the author says about Abraham uh, and the other saints. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, the saints who lived by faith in the Old Testament looked forward They didn't look back. They didn't dwell on where they had come from, but their eyes were fixed on where they were going. The city of God. To be with God. You remember Jesus' exhortation in Luke 17? It's very simple. He gives this warning about coming judgment, and he says something very simple. Remember Lot's wife. It's from the lips of Jesus. What does he mean? Remember Lot's wife. Go back to Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed with fire and brimstone from heaven. Lot and his wife and their daughters escape when the angels lead them out. And as they're running away, what does Lot's wife do? She turns around and looks back. And just like that, she turns into a pillar of salt. Why, God? Why why did that happen? Why do we have to remember that, Jesus? Because when she turned her head around and looked back on Sodom, she was expressing how her heart was still there. Instead of focusing on where they were going, being led out, being delivered by the mercy of God, her heart's still back there in that city of sin, in that world of ungodliness. That's not how we run, guys. We run looking forward. Chapter 3 of Philippians, forgetting what's behind me. (laughs) There's a lot of sin back there. There's a lot of failure back there. There's a lot of imperfection back there. But I'm forgetting that because there's a prize in front of me, and it's Jesus. There's a calling of my life, and it's, it's the upward call. It's up into God's presence in glory. That's, that's where I'm running. I'm looking that way, which means we have to make a conscious choice to not look at some things and to focus on other things. We look at Jesus himself. I, I love pulling illustrations from Scripture. Just like Peter when he walked on water, he gets out of the boat and it's, it's funny, we kind of rail on Peter, like, oh, he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank, right? Hey, everybody else stayed in the boat. <laughs> like, he got out and actually walked on the water. So before you, you rail on Peter, let's, let's realize he was the only one who had the faith to get out, right? 
But what's the story say? Peter gets out of the boat, and he actually walks on water to go to Jesus. And here's this beautiful picture, guys. While he's looking at Jesus, he's walking on the water. He's doing the impossible. As long as his eyes are fixed on Christ, something amazing is happening in his life. But then the, the text says that all of a sudden he notices that the wind is boisterous and the waves are intense. And, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus for a minute and he starts to look around and say, wow, that's a, that's a big wave. And man, the wind is howling tonight. And was that thunder? And what happens as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus? He, he sinks. That's the perfect picture of what the author's saying here. Run the race fixed on Jesus. There's lightning crashing all around me right now. There's, this is a scary storm that's happening in my life. But I'm not really consumed by that because there's something greater that I'm focused on. And it's Jesus. He's, he's here with me in the storm. He's got a promise for me. He's calling me to himself. Why would I take my eyes off of him and focus on these other circumstances? Run the race looking unto Jesus. Actually, that's what the author says here. If you look in uh, verse... The end of verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're running with endurance, we're running eyes up, we're running with eyes fixed on Christ. And then our text says that that's exactly what Jesus did. He focused on the prize on the other side of his cross. He did not enjoy the cross, he didn't enjoy the shame, he didn't enjoy the pain, but the text says... For the joy that was set before him, the reward on the other side, he endured all of those things. And now he sat down at the right hand of God. That's our pattern. Lord, carrying my cross is painful, so was Christ's. Lord, carrying my cross is scary, it's difficult, it's, it's overwhelming, so was Christ's. Lord, this is going to kill me, Christ's did kill him. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured and so, as we follow Christ, we endure, we carry our cross, and we are sure that there is a reward. We're sure that there's a, a, a promise on the other side. And, and what is the reward? What is the inheritance of a Christian's life? Uh, gold and diamonds and flying around and uh, never feeling pain, right? No. The reward is Christ. You know what a joy it is to tell you from this pulpit this morning that when this is done, when your race is done, you get Jesus. God is the reward. You know, when I was a kid and I thought of heaven, I thought, oh, there's going to be swimming pools of Gatorade. I can swim and drink at the same time. And it's going to be so amazing. In my little childlike mind, I hadn't conceived of any idea of God's greatness and holiness and awesomeness. What, what is the paradise of heaven? What is the reward? What is the joy of heaven? Oh my goodness, you get to see God and enjoy him forever. So I'm not here to tell you to run your race this morning so that when you get to the finish line, you can just collapse and somebody can say, good job, and move on. No, I'm telling you, when you get to the end, you're going to soar with the angels and worship in God's presence. This is, this is motivation to run the race. You know, the guy that runs the marathon gets a little trophy. Gets, gets old, it rusts, falls apart, and no one cares next year. But at the end of this race, you can't even measure the prize. You can't, you can't even measure the inheritance. 
Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit's the down payment, the guarantee of this amazing, priceless inheritance. So I want you to consider Christ. I want you to run with your eyes focused on him. And I want you to be encouraged this morning, church. You can finish. God will finish what he started in you, which means you can finish your race. And you can take the next step. David was here. Jesus was here. Hallelujah. There's hope for us too. At this time, we're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's table. So I'm going to ask, uh, I think we have a a few men that are going to help serve. If you would uh, come forward and bear with me. (laughs) If I do this a little bit differently, um, I'm going to ask them to come up and then uh, if, if it's okay with you, I'm going to pray, and then they'll come and serve. 